Hi, welcome back to the Origins Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Krauss, again. When I gave my introduction to Heather McDonald, I pointed out that we updated our earlier discussion with a new discussion we had uh, uh, this week. And as happens, that new discussion ended up being almost as long as the original one. It was important because we brought up to date a whole variety of things that have happened since we last talked, everything from George Floyd to critical race theory uh, uh, to, to, to what's going on in, in, in academia uh, and, and in the current times regarding censorship. And, and the discussion was interesting. We, we continue to disagree on a number of points, but once again, uh, that's important that we can have that discussion. And the fact that some of the ideas that were discussed will provoke or offend is something that I'm not going to apologize for. It's the kind of discussion that needs to be had. People could decide if they disagree or not. But without having those kind of discussions, we can't really examine our own ideas. So uh, with no further ado, part two of my discussion with Heather McDonald. Hi there, and, and, and welcome back, Heather. And thank you for agreeing to... Uh, to uh, talk to me one more time. Uh, it's been a long time, but it's been an amazing time in the sense that I, I just listened to our our original discussion, which is now almost a year and a half old, I think. And it was amazingly prescient in many ways. In fact, I was dubious. There were things I was dubious about, which I've since now written about because I've gotten so angry. So so I think it's a great time to do a catch up. And it's nice to see you again, if, if remotely this time. Well, this is one upside to the uh, COVID insanity that we get to meet again like this. Exactly. Person. So I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to update. Good. Okay. I'm glad. Thank you. Now, you know, in fact, one of the things when I was listening that amused me uh, immediately was when you talked about your personal history, you talked about, I guess, the, the, the things that had led you to become, quote unquote, maybe more conservative or, or, or if you want to call it that way. And it was your experience at Yale with postmodernism and deconstruction. And what is 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 so poetically so poetic about that is that the new the new I mean, it's not you for you, but the new fad, the new that that's captured the world, it seems, or at least the United States has to do with this critical race theory. And and you do. I don't know if you know the book by by Helen Pluckrose and, and James Lindsay, which uh, cynical theories, I think it's called argue that 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 whole this whole notion of oppression if you wish comes uh, arises out of, of a sort of the foucault postmodernist uh, view so i wanted to ask you about that well yeah that's the hermeneutics of suspicion uh which assumes that one reads one analyzes uh literary texts or culture with the assumption that it is all about hidden power and oppression as opposed to a professor opening himself up to beauty and to trying to, to try to teach his students why they should be down on their knees in gratitude before these astounding sublime works of human imagination. So the dominant attitude within the academy today is this uh, you know, cynical view that there's subtext to be deconstructed. I would say though that and I, I can't remember now whether this came up in our original uh, discussion that deconstruction is sharply different from, from what came after in the 1980s in that deconstruction was absolutely indifferent to 
uh, sex and, and race. It, it read from a much more abstract perspective of, of claiming that language always broke down, but the identity politics overlay came after my involvement with literary theory. And that's the only thing in my intellectual career that I'm grateful for, that I was <laughs> able to uh, experience these texts without having that type of chip on my shoulder to complain that I was reading dead white males, which is about the most nonsensical and adolescent complaint that I can think of. Absolutely. I, and I, this is an area where I agree with you 100%, and we'll go into that a little bit more. But the uh, again, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, because obviously your experience with deconstructionism is much greater than mine. Mine was from a distance up the hill at Yale from the physics department. But um, the uh, uh, but the notion that things are socially constructed, I, I, I see that coming in, especially when I hear people, you know, critiquing science. Now they're using an identity politics motivation to critique science but still the notion that somehow there is not an objective reality that things are still conditioned in this case by the oppressive white supremacy or you pick your 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 oppressor you're absolutely right and and i didn't make that connection that 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 there is that sense that everything is a text that texts break down uh that uh you know reality itself i mean the Deconstruction went so far as to say that the human self doesn't exist. It's just an epiphenomenon of language and rhetoric, which is insane. Uh, so, so that is true. On the other hand, I also push back against the conservative narrative that blames the current moment on the alleged nihilism and relativism of various postmodern structuralist theories I guess I, I know those arguments in, in one sense, they're true. On the other hand, that's not how the left lives. The left lives with utter moral certainty. Uh, so there's a whole set of contradictions with on the left. I mean, on the one hand, race is a social construct, but if you don't see my race, you're not seeing me, uh, those types of things. But also they don't live as if truth is a social construct because they damn well know as a incontestable fact that America is white supremacist. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a, it's a religious, it's a religious, it's, it's so religious in nature in the sense that they know that the absolute truth is known and independent of any evidence. And as someone pointed out to me, the difference between, I, I got that kind of secular religiosity of that absolute moral certainty um, and 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 the religiosity of, of of more standard religions. The only difference is that at least at least some of the more standard religions allow absolution. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. we'll never we'll never end up we'll never stop paying. Uh, it's it's a endless bounty for uh, the pur purging, but not really of guilt and for transfer of of redistribution. I mean the yeah the 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 blindness to facts is just extraordinary, whether it's policing and crime and the blindness and willingness to look at the facts of black crime, which is what drives police today in our data-driven policing environment, blindness to the facts of the academic skills gap, which is the sole reason why there isn't proportional representation in, uh, in, in the professions and in academia, 
you sent me recently, Lawrence, uh, in just dismay, one of the latest uh, religious refusals to look at hard reality, which was the firing of a Georgetown Law School clinical professor for speaking once again the truth about the effect of racial preferences in law school admissions, which is that having admitted blacks with LSAT scores and GPAs, nearly, you know, usually a standard deviation below those of their white peers, not surprisingly, utterly predictably, blacks end up at the bottom of their class. She said, a, a professor said this thinking this was in confidence to another professor. It wasn't as if she was even going forward and, and you know, putting the lives of, of Georgetown's mm -hmm. black students at risk by speaking mm -hmm. the truth, but she was fired for speaking the truth. And, and so you have this bizarre uh, racial preference theater going on in every selective school across the country in which the professors and deans pretend that the effects of mismatch theory don't exist. It's, it's really quite extraordinary. Yeah, yes, you know, I, I, obviously I sent it to you, uh, but I, and I thought of you because we had talked a lot about law, law schools since part of your background is, is legal and, and, and a lot of the references in, in it's certainly in the diversity illusion are, are, are to law schools. Um, and I thought of that example because you talked about mismatch and you'd said at the time you, 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 there was more research needed to be done and people were, were, were holding on guarding carefully the data so people couldn't really examine mismatch. But what actually even upset me more about that particular case was not that she drew that conclusion so much uh, and it was in confidence, was that, and, and she made a point also pointing out that it was, you know, like all stereotypes or like all, there's statistics and it was a, it was a it was a distribution right. and there were some people you know blacks and other people who were who were at the top of the class but but what got to me so much was it what she was doing was bemoaning it was saying she hated to have to address this problem and it was so it wasn't it wasn't touting it or right. or asserting it it was saying i i really i really i hate to have to grade because i worry that this might be the case and of course the grading is blind so it's a but, it, you know, that's what surprised me is that she wasn't drawing a conclusion so much as anticipating uh, her worst fears and and um, and then was fired. And not only was she fired, but the person she was talking to who just nodded their head yeah. had to resign as well, which which and we'll get to the, this. Well, it's again something you alluded to and something that really concerns me most is that this is now it's not just that this is a allegation by by people who feel victimhood is a is part of their identity but it's been bought by it wholly and not just bought but it but it but but pushed forward by the by the guard by the heads of institutions by the by the 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 people you might think would be the the guardians if you wish against those kind of fringe views and and you know what do you take i mean critical race theory and, and you know which is I like to think of it like string theory, which I used to criticize. It shouldn't be called a theory. But um, uh, this notion has become de facto accepted, not just in, in the it's in the media and by institution, by academic institutions and government and and businesses. Um, a law, all of that's happened in the year and a half since since we last spoke. And of course, George Floyd in the trial is about to I understand they've just gone now, which will date our conversation to to the jury to 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 um 
So uh, yeah, what do well, you take America of that, that, that sudden, what seems to me this sudden takeover, it, it really is uh, remarkable. Well, first of all, I want to make a prediction here, not about this Chauvin verdict, but about where we're going with the academic skills gap and with the crime gap. I think, you know, we've seen the effort to uh, schools saying that they're pulling out of the SAT, making it voluntary or not wanting submissions at all. That's a completely gratuitous act. They don't need to do that. They can simply, you know, every school is committed to these massive racial preferences they can continue doing what they're already doing, which is race norm. They judge black and Hispanic SAT scores against a different set of standards than they do white and Asian uh, SAT scores. So it's not as if they get the scores coming in and feel like this imperative of, of objectivity and neutrality comes upon them and they're forced to like, put everybody on the same scale, they don't. Uh, they've been they for for four decades they've been admitting blacks after having seen their SATs with massively lower scores. Why are they now uh, more and more rejecting even any submission of the SATs? I think it's because they want to put the College Board out of existence because there still are a few remaining objective tests that show us the size of the academic skills gap, I predict the same thing is gonna happen with crime. Uh, there are a few departments out there that continue to publish the data. You know, where this goes from here and why every institution has embraced this. Uh, if I can also say another thing I was present on, I, I used to give a speech about two years ago, two and a half years ago, making the point you did, which is that anti-racism is now the national religion. And, and saying that, uh, you know, as, as evidence of actual racism gets more and more de minimis. And so you have, you know, the, uh, uh, the Jesse, what's his name case in, in Chicago, mm -hmm. you know, the fraud about claiming he was beaten up by MAGA hat wearing uh, Trump supporters mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in an alleyway. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, several years ago, uh, uh, Katy Perry, a singer, had to withdraw mm -hmm. a line of women's flats, women's shoes, because a design on the toe of one of them invoked phantom images of, of blackface, which was completely insane. But, but there's this sort of ritual cleansing of the hands uh, and attempt at purification that I think is driven by the fact, and, and again, as you say, this is going on in every single mainstream institution, every corporation, bank, law firm, government office, university, public school system, because America is terrified that the academic skills gap is not going to close. And they are working out a preemptive explanation that is the only allowable explanation for the persistence of that gap which is white supremacy and, and bias. Well, okay, well, there's a lot to unpack there and we're gonna, it's covering, it, it, you hit on a number of topics that I wanna go, go into. But first, by the way, I, I do wanna ask you um, a uh, question that I don't know the answer to and, and, and you, you made from your book, but you talked about this um, systematic effort to, to admit, well, affirmative action effort to admit people with lower SAT scores, say, um, uh, uh, based on race. Is the same, does the same, has the same thing happened based on gender at all over the years? 
Oh, in the STEM fields, absolutely. Uh, and, and even less so in undergraduates because now generally women, females are, are the majority in, in undergraduate populations, but there's exceptions. Cornell University admits undergraduates based on declared majors and there in the engineering department at Cornell, females have a three times higher rate chance of being admitted than males, uh, even though female uh, math SATs are lower than males. Uh, but, but within the, the STEM fields in mm. Lawrence, I mean, you know this yourself. Yeah. My God, I hear from my friends in electrical engineering and, and astrophysics they're having substandard female candidates shoved down their throats all the time. That's, you know, the, the main diversity game in STEM and big tech is females because there are so few even remotely qualified black uh, engineers or computer scientists or mathematicians that it's, it's virtually impossible. Whereas there are females out there, but as you said before, it, when you're talking distributions, it is just incontestable that on average males have higher math scores and at the both tails of the distribution as Lawrence Summers was fired for saying, uh, males have the worst math scores and the very best math scores. That's now apparently unacceptable. And while China in the sciences at least continues to be from all purposes ruthlessly meritocratic, uh, America believes that gender politics is more important than, than scientific discoveries, than a cure for Alzheimer's disease. You have the federal government, including under Trump, uh, but it's going to get worse under Biden, as, as you've said, uh, awarding research grants to institutions based on their hiring of, of female and URMs, underrepresented minority scientific researchers, rather than based on their the the caliber of their labs. Yeah, I want to well, I want to go into that in even more in more detail. But the the you're right that at the same time so bureaucratic because when I was chair of the department we actually there was a colleague a, a very good physicist who happened to be black who wanted to come to our university. His wife was was had been hired in another department. As you often know, there one hires trailing spouses in academia, right. and I thought we could we could do that. I thought this was a great opportunity. But it turns out he was uh, from uh, Bahamas and therefore he wasn't an un he was black, but he wasn't African-American and therefore he wow. wasn't the right kind of minority. So they wouldn't do a trailing a trailing spouse, which I just you know, that kind of silliness that that in terms of ticking boxes. Well, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I actually uh, who's to say what's sillier? I mean, yeah. I would actually say that that is more honest and, and maybe more has more integrity. And in fact, Several years ago, you may recall, Cornell undergraduates complained that uh, non-African Americans were being used yeah. for oh, filling the racial quotas. So I'm surprised that your department actually made that distinction because that's one of the arguments that have, that conservatives yeah. used against, say, Harvard in the uh, SFAA suit that they don't care about economic. Uh, you know, lack of privilege that will yeah. take the black son of a Nigerian investment banker sure. over some 
white sharecropper son with higher SATs. So, yeah. so the yeah, needs no. of foreign, you know, that's, that's a, ubiquitous. So I'm surprised at your department. Well, it was, it was the university, but yeah, it's a, it's a point. It's a good point, I guess. Uh, but, but the, the other thing I wanted to, before we go on was, um, I think it probably standardized testing, apparently law school works. So, so the, the removing it is, is, is maybe more problematic. I have to say as a, as a, as a longstanding academic, I, Doing away with standardized testing wouldn't bother me because in physics it has virtually no, no, very little correlation, especially in graduate school. Really, uh, uh, almost no correlation. I've uh, with 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 further success, and so a lot of departments, for non-identity politics reasons, have been getting away, get, doing away with things like the GRE exam because it it just doesn't. And 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 what happened is that you you tended to select for people who did the test better, which meant generally in physics. Um, and it was always the case that the high when you add applications, the Chinese students would always have the highest GREs. Huh. Uh, but it didn't necessarily co correspond to later on when it came to research, which was not as sort of, um, you know, test oriented that they that, that they excelled as well. So so sometimes in certain fields, standardized testing is, is useful in other fields. I'm not I'm not I'm not convinced. I've witnessed that. I mean, obviously, astronomy was one is probably the most widespread jettisoning of the of the physics GREs. And I have to say, at this point, I'm so cynical uh, and so despising of, of the academic diversity racket that I completely discounted the, that explanation, which is that the GREs are non-predictive. It's very hard for me to believe as somebody outside the field. The problem is, of course, if you get rid of those, what what takes their place yeah and you have it's hard to do you generally have recommendations and it's hard to it's you know it's all actually it's all kind of arbitrary in a way i've always found when i've been on selection committees even when i was at yale i kind of felt like we should do a lottery it tended to be the students were all kind of good and 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 it wasn't clear who would who would do better than others so i was kind of i was cynical about that as far as the now i'll get i'll get more hate letters as a physicist who's also taught astronomy i think the other reason astronomers get rid of the physics GRE is this kind of, well, I won't say physics envy, but it's 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 the fact is it's not clear that <laughs> that, that that the physics would anyway. We'll, we'll, let's not go there. Okay, uh, I, um, I see where you're going. Yeah, but um, <laughs> uh, um, but and then, and then okay, I'm going to be even worse. Is that why there's much more females in astronomy? Okay, well now we'll really step away from this. No, no, it's interesting. You know, that's what is a fascinating thing actually is that one. One here, well, it's changing, of course, all the time. It's as dynamic as you, as we now discussing, but there's a more vocal discussion of of gender bias against females in astronomy, which is surprising because as a field, it it um, it always has had more women, uh -huh. and in fact, it it's really kind of interesting that um, that that what you see is the areas, and this was always apparent to me. In Europe, it's even greater fraction of, of females. It, you know, it's it, it's much more representative of the background demographics and they make much less of a big deal about it. And it's kind of an interesting sort of inverse relationship that you see. It's well, you're really, still naive. I mean, Lawrence, I guess I am. You're still naive. And if, if you think it's surprising that the fact that astronomy is more heavily female means that there's more feminist complaints to me that is completely logical and oh. follows precisely from what okay. we know about the world well yes i guess you've yeah well okay well um but but what i want to hit on next is pushing for a little further this incredible adoption by the by the governing bodies and this and and senior scientists and 
of this of this underlying claimed reality of systemic racism, systemic bias, systemic gender bias, without without as you pointed out earlier, without evidence, and 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 I think that's a it, the assumption when there's a the, the the de facto assumption is made when there's a inequity in compared to demographics when there's a smaller percent that the result that the reason has to be gender bias or racism instead of something else is is remarkable and what one sees is and i've seen this happen in a different context is is this kind of virtue signaling the need to be in front the need the need to be in front of the of the and i think it's probably the power of social media or or, or whatever but but instead of just acceding to demands the, the these groups go beyond the the leadership goes beyond and the verbiage tends to uh T- tends to be way ahead they want to lead rather than follow and it it's remarkable and and um let me let me let me talk about one thing that you know the american physical society and i wrote about this and i think you've read my piece about it but but um the american physical society uh uh has has bought wholeheartedly into the notion that science is racist something which i have argued and i still argue is not for which I, I, I and no one I know has ever seen any evidence of. Universities tend to be quite the opposite. But um, but here I want to ask. So in, in dece- the, one of the things the American Physical Society did was buy into this day of protest mm-hmm. where all research at STEM groups was supposed to stop to because of the horrendous racism of the, that that apparent that was supposedly existed that and, and that 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 concerned me but more recently the head of the the president of the american physical society and the, and the american physical society sent out a letter to its membership arguing that trump's and i'm you know i'm no fan of i'm no fan of trump but trump's presidential executive order on combating race and sex stereotypes was in direct opposition to the core values of the american physical society now i want to read the order the order um w- was done to strengthen american this american scientific enterprise it has since been rescinded, by the way, of course, uh, by Biden. But it quoted Martin Luther King saying that in government supported scientific institutions, people should be judged, quote, not by the color of, uh, of their skin, but by the content of their character. It argued that materials from places like Argonne National Laboratory that equate, quote, color blindness and, quote, meritocracy with with actions of bias or from Sandia National Laboratories, which stated that an emphasis on rationality over emotionality is a characteristic of white males were inappropriate training materials for government supported institutions. And it concluded that it should be the policy of the United States not to promote race or sex stereotyping or scapegoating in the federal workforce. Now, when you look at those words, the claim that that's antithetical to the to the to the to the principles of the American Physical Society seems strange to me. It's terrifying. It is. We are. It is just. This is such a betrayal of our precious legacy of the scientific revolution of rationality, of, of you know, controlled experiments, the, the scientific method that seeks for truth and evidence. We do not deserve it. We should be, you know, back to, to going to the bathroom in the woods, stripped <laughs> of public health, ravaged by, by actually terrible communicable diseases. It's outrageous that we we are absorbing the fruits of the breakthroughs of rational 
truth-seeking that is the crown and glory of Western civilization and then demeaning it at the same time. It, it, it's a stunning. And obviously, if Martin Luther King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech today, uh, he would be boycotted as a white supremacist because that is now the, the received wisdom and, and part of the religious dogma on the part of the left, which is that to say you're colorblind uh, is to be white supremacist. So, so it turns out that, that Martin Luther King was, was hoping to see a day when America would be truly white supremacist. As I, as I said before, Lawrence, my analysis of this is that it is driven by the terror that the black achievement gap, you know, we've been speaking about the gender stuff, mm. but I think the gender stuff is, is an epiphenomenon and is piggybacking onto what is the driving fact of our world today, uh, which is the dysfunction of inner city culture with its large ripple effects throughout too many members of, of the black community, not everybody. I mean, there's plenty, there's thousands, thousands of blacks that embrace bourgeois values of academic striving, self-restraint, deferred gratification, hard work. But you have a culture now that is utterly dysfunctional in the inner city. And it is resulting in this intractable academic skills gap. And I think America's elite whites are terrified that the gap is not gonna close and that other explanations than racism will be offered for it, whether it's culture or heritability. And they are doing this as a preemptive move to make sure that neither of those explanations can gain any traction. Okay, well, that's interesting. I mean, I, I, it's one of the areas where I think we diverge a little bit, but not that much in the sense that Hi there, this is Lawrence Krauss. I'm often on the lookout for uh, protein powders because I like to put them in shakes, in fruit shakes that I create. Uh, not every day, but most days, uh, especially before I work out. And so for me, as I look around the counters, I look for uh, good sources of protein and ones where there are not a lot of unknown additives. I've been particularly interested in learning about Ritual, a multivitamin company that produces protein powders that are traceable, and for which all the ingredients are there and there's no there's no garbage or nonsense about extra dietary supplements or anything like that deep down it's just protein powder and materials that are in my case good for people over 50 calcium as well uh, it's developed with a uh, a team of of, of uh, reputable scientists but beyond that the main thing that i i like about this is the, is the traceable nature of it the fact that the that it's built with a purpose uh, that that the, the protein they explain to you is in fact 20 grams of pea protein that um, that there are different formulas for different kinds of, of, of needs for 18 plus for pregnancy or a postpartum and for 50 plus and and the different the different uh, formulas are there and easy to easy to understand and it's made with a good taste uh, a handicrafted vanilla formula um, made direct again direct from the farmer vanilla um, sustainably harvested and no extra sugar or sugar alcohol so 
If you're interested in, in this kind of thing, if you like to use protein powders to supplement your diet uh, for exercise or for any other reason, and in this case, for health reasons as well, depending upon your stage of life. So why not shake up your ritual? To make trying something new less scary, Ritual offers a money-back guarantee if you're not 100% in love with Ritual. Plus, listeners to the Origins podcast will get 10% off during your first three months. Just visit ritual.com slash origins to add essential protein today. That's ritual.com slash origins. My problem with, 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 with the, this treatment of trying to solve the problem at universities and, and, and creating positions that are, I believe strongly in a meritocracy. I mean, the academia has to be a meritocracy and uh, which is itself heretical to say right now. But um, in many places, right. uh, but my, my problem is that they, that these problems and I think there are real problems of racism in this country. There are real problems of social inequity in this country, but they're not going to be solved by making someone an assist, a, a full professor who uh, you know, that's the last place. What you have to do and I, I and you stress what you what you focus on is what you perceive as the cultural problems in this year. I, I, for, I, I think, again, having lived in Cleveland, that a lot there are huge problems i think they're 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 the inequities that have the, the the problems have resulted from social inequities often economic inequities which may have their basis in racism in the past but but you have you have places like the inner city of cleveland where i used to go where there weren't where there weren't books in the schools they didn't have the tax base i i certainly agree with you and i think i can i can hold both positions you maybe can't hold both of mine <laughs> but i i agree with you uh that you know, we shouldn't have victimology. I would say, yes, there are obviously schools that are vastly under endowed. I would look at their management, but I would also say that um, you stick an Asian kid and a black kid in the same classroom, and I can predict pretty well who's gonna end up learning something. And that the talk to inner city teachers, the ones that will be willing to speak about their, their experience. And they will say that they're facing, uh, on average, there's always exceptions, but a culture of stigma against acting white, students not paying attention in class, not taking their textbooks home, uh, parents indifferent to whether their kids are studying or not, the truancy rate on one study in California for blacks is four times higher than that for whites. So at this point, yes, you know, you can talk about school resources, but Lawrence, it's not as if we haven't been trying for 50 it's, years. It's not, it's just not just the school resources. It's the resources of the community. I mean, I think there's a, an eco, you know, again, this is where we differ. I, there's definitely economic factors. There's poverty, there's extreme poverty that leads to, you know, there's there's a whole confluence of things that impact that impact on the family environment as well. I might say, for example, that, yes, you're I, I would agree with you probably generically and statistically about maybe an Asian kid versus even a white kid. Let's you know, a non-Asian kid. But but I, I suspect that if you had an Asian kid who was in, 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 in an area with Asian gangs, that their approach to school might be you know, that it, that we're living in a poverty in, a, in an area surrounded by gangs and poverty, that their that their cultural um, approach to school might not be that different than than people in an area with the white or black gangs. I, that's my assumption. I, I guess I 
I tend to think of more of a, yeah, so I don't need to say any more there, but. Well, but I think that the gangs are a cultural problem. I mean, I don't yeah. take those as a background given. I mean, that yeah. is precisely part of the problem. And I would also say with regards to poverty, that the biggest driver of poverty in this country of child poverty is the culture of out of wedlock childbearing. It's being raised by a single mother. Yeah. Uh, and that is the privilege. Now we hear about white privilege. The real privilege today is whether you're growing up with two married parents, a, a kid with two married parents that have say $20,000 in household income annually is gonna do a lot better than a child of a single mother with 40,000 in government assistance benefits. So I, you know, I, I just think at this point, we have spent so much time blaming society and trying to compensate with redistribution programs. And we have not spent enough time focusing on things that people can do for themselves. I, and, you know, yeah, I understand. I think, I mean, and I accept certainly, I mean, in both cases, I think we both, while we disagree, I think there's a lot we overlap with. It's a, it's a question of, again, a distribution, whether we agree at the center. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think I understand what you're saying. I'd rather here not focus on that. I think we have different approaches to societal problems. What, I, what, what we certainly agree on is approaches to non-problems, <laughs> to, to non-existent problems, and, and how, that is, how that is negatively impacting um, so many areas of society. And obviously for me, because I, I've been an academic, the, the, the impact on academia has been, has been remarkable. What do you, what do you make of, uh, one, let me just bring up some of the other things th that amaze me, this retraction, the fact that now journals are retracting papers that are not demonstrably wrong but that don't have conclusions that people like. And that, that's the worst, that's the worst thing. I mean, they may be crummy papers, but if they've been, you know, I know a lot of, I, you know, in physics, I would read papers and journals and I'd say, well, this is not very good, but, but, but I wouldn't say, you know, but we don't, if we retracted all the papers that were crazy in physics, there would be, there'd be none. But uh, I mean, for example, more related to, to your first book, something I wrote about and which you're quite aware of is that is this Michigan State uh, psychology professors who published a, a, an article in I think the proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences. And it was, there were double problems with that. First of all, the, the, the vice president for research who happens to be a physicist that I knew, knew well, helped fund that. And as part of the day of protest, associated with the American Physical Society had their day of protest, some of the people took time out to then say, well, we use our day of protest to try and remove this vice president for research for funding this clearly racist research. What was the racist research? The research suggested, and I don't, I can't comment on, on, on how, how it's quality, but the research is certainly was reasonable enough to be accepted by the proceedings of National Academy of Sciences, suggested that there might not be this correlation between police violence and, 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 and race. And, and by at least exploring that, heretical question not only was he removed but what was remarkable is the the authors ultimately were pressured into retracting the article what do you what it what's your comment on that <laughs> well the reason they retracted it is that i cited it in, an, in a wall street journal uh op-ed at the start of the floyd riots and so it was my association with it 
and publicizing it that that led to this retraction it is utterly appalling it is again a violation of the procedures of academic truth seeking that have given the world prosperity that have lifted billions out of squalor and premature death which is the belief in the marketplace of ideas and that if you think something is wrong, you don't suppress it, you provide better arguments and better data. So again, it, it all comes back to, I'm sorry, I'm gonna be broken record. Mm. It is all driven by the black behavior gap and the skills gap. Anything that shows that disparate outcomes in this case in policing and incarceration are driven by black crime, not by racism, is not allowed. Joseph Cesario, the lead researcher on that paper from Michigan State University, they found that when you take crime rates, violent crime rates into account, uh, that police officers, white officers were no more likely to shoot black, black civilians and race simply disappeared. That uh, seconded a paper they'd done in 2018 that showed that when you take violent crime rates into account, the odds ratios for blacks and whites of being fatally shot by the police reversed completely, and that whites were actually three times more likely to be fatally shot by the police. Uh, you know, one doesn't have to do fancy regression analyses to come to those conclusions. You can just put side by side the percentages of blacks who were shot by the police fatally each year with the percentage of blacks who commit violent crimes like homicide, robbery, uh, aggravated assault and rape, uh, and see that the percentage of blacks involved in those crimes that make one more the most susceptible to having elevated uses of force, including lethal force used against you, are much, much higher than the percentage of blacks who are actually shot. So, you know, this is just amazing. This is why I say, get a hold of and download the data you can now from the NYPD, from the LAPD, I don't think the Chicago Police Department publishes anymore, that show that that is why police stops and arrests are higher in Black neighborhoods, because very soon it is going to be gone. And there will be no way to counter, even though the countering of that narrative doesn't make any damn bit of difference, but to at least put facts out there that show that policing is not racist, it is simply going where people are being most murdered by drive-by shootings. Okay, well, as I say, I, I, I'm, those statistics I find fascinating. I, I, I haven't studied, I, I, anything that I haven't studied, I kind of remain agnostic about in the sense that, that it seems like, it seems plausible to me, and it certainly seems rational. I, I, uh, uh, and, and you've done more looking at the data than I have, but it's certainly worth, the point is, if that data exists, it's worth discussing and it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be taboo from talking about it, regardless of, of your interpretation of it, to even, but what worries me is that to even ask the question, to even ask the question is forbidden. And that's the, that's for me, the ultimate slap in the face as an academic. If you can't ask questions, then, then the, the hope of a rational society and any progress of scholarship goes out the window. Well, there's whole areas of research that are now taboo. It used to be that 
in the early 2000s, end of the 1990s, it was still kind of possible, though very risky professionally, to study traffic behavior by race. And the few studies that were done showed that blacks speed at twice the rate of whites. That is a very significant fact to know when you're doing your usual racial profiling traffic stop studies. Now, nobody can study that. If you did, you'd be out of a career as a criminologist or a social scientist. But it, it, um, OK, it, that, that's there. And but I also want to point out that, you know, I know that uh, I mean, you're making the the the, the key point which you've made that 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 it's that it's this concern about possible racial disparities that is causing this censorship. Um, but it also but the same kind of thing is happening in gender. I mean, there was just a New York Times op ed, but it was a piece I knew about already um, about an article which looked to me like a silly article, but it was an article in Nature. And there are a lot of silly articles in Nature. And it, the researchers were female when they made a, they looked statistically and they said, on the whole, um, women who have uh, females who have women, female mentors don't do as well as female students who have male mentors. Now, my presumption, not having worried about in detail is, well, I think there's probably the rationale is in my mind, quite simple. Historically, it is in STEM disciplines. Historically, STEM disciplines have been more, more or less male and seen. And and if historically, the most senior researchers have been male and you tend to do better if you work with this most senior researcher. So it's not surprising that 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 people who work with male researchers historically have have uh, done better. Now, there may be arguments. There may be other reasons, too. And that means that it's not particularly an interesting article, but it's an article and the statistics are there. And the as far as I know, the authors have still not argued that they made any mistake in their statistics. But instead, 7000 people demanded uh, scientists and I, you know, I don't know whether what their demographics were demanded it be retracted and it was retracted. And and because the conclusion, which may not have been very interesting, nevertheless, what the, what the argument that was given was it doesn't send a good message to young female research students. And therefore, we can't allow it. You know, we can instead of saying, look, I think it's uninteresting and there are many re peripheral reasons why it may, that may be the case. Uh, it's no, we better not even admit that bit of evidence for fear that it will that it will uh, that it will go against the argument that that, you know, that young women should work with 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 senior women, that they need female mentors to succeed. Well, you know, the analogy to religion can get overworked, but but it is true. I mean, this is just, it's, we're in a world where we see heretics. We want to crush heresy. We do not allow any dissent from the catechism of, of revealed truth, which is that the world is biased towards white males and that females and, and uh, blacks and Hispanics are oppressed, that they are unable to reach their full potential because of the oppression of white males. And any facts to the con contrary must be uh, ruthlessly erased. And, and what's so nauseating is that these are the people who go around under the mantle of science, whether it's wearing masks outdoors when there's virtually zero chance <laughs> of transmission of coronavirus in windswept outdoor spaces, 
uh, and yet there they are virtue signaling with their damn masks on uh, or, you know, going, exceeding to every absolutely arbitrary uh, numerical limit on shutdowns and whatnot. And yet there they are uh, destroying the scientific enterprise. I don't know where this ends. Uh, we, are, we are moving into a period of real censorship, whether it's privately imposed uh, with the exceeding of government, it will probably end up being government imposed as well. And as you said earlier, that we are cutting off the, the means by which society advances, which is advanced, the airing of ideas, the contesting of ideas, open debate. One doesn't know what to do. You know, yeah, you well, I want to I want to get there. You know, I want to I want to you know, I want to lead there. But in fact, last thing I'd like to talk about is what can we do if there's anything. But um, in fact, of course, you <laughs> I'm always happy that you throw in these things which are going to, you know, push my buttons. But I mean, and I happen to be a general. My attitude is maths in general work. And therefore, it's no big deal to, you know, if they work in general, want, you know, instead of making a series of exceptions, you know, wear them and and um, and 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 it, and it helps the problem. But anyway, let's not talk about masks. Um, it's wonderful that people who could disagree about so many things could <laughs> agree about other things, but or be concerned about the same things. Indeed, talking about censorship, there was an article by a chemist in Canada, an eminent chemist, who wrote about merit and his concerns, in fact, about affirmative action and promotion that never, in spite of the need, you know, the desire to have diversity, merit should be the key determiner. And that, and there was no quite, not only was that person basically castigated by the provost of the university, but that article was removed too. But but more so, the, the examples of censorship that I find most concerning, both societally and and and, and now in the media, are, are the two. I mean, one, you're in, I think, in California right now, but the San Francisco desire to cancel, you know, to censor history, <clears throat> censor Abraham Lincoln in principle, because, you know, he, he while he might have might have been good in one area, he was, when it comes to Native Americans, he wasn't. But also this horrendous example of the science writer for the New York Times, who who was taking a, a group of kids to Peru. And one of the kids talked about how a friend had used that the N word, which no one can say, uh, because it's like saying Yahweh in, in, in the Jewish religion. Um, uh, and and he basically advised again, you know, talked about the problems, but he used the word and. Therefore, independent of any context and the fact that he was trying to advise people in a rational, good way about why they shouldn't use that word necessarily, he was removed that that. And, you know, I wrote a piece called the turning the profane into the sacred. I mean, we're but if we censor language, if if words become so. And we've seen this with trigger and we talk, may have talked about this last tr trigger warnings, trigger, you know, safe zones in schools, in universities where words are so dangerous that merely saying them will destroy someone's whole academic career. And in this case, will destroy, you know, society that the media cannot use those words. That's a great concern because uh, because once you start censoring language at such an extreme level um, that regardless of context, words can't be used. Well, then we really are religious, don't you think? Yeah. Um, and there's two things at play here. There's the nauseating conceit of fragility that 
is here I agree with you this is sort of originates with the uh, uh, the female ethos of safetyism and and uh, you know the, the the crying about I'm 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 unsafe I'm unsafe that has been picked up by blacks obviously and that led to the firing of of another New York Times uh, the editorial yeah. editor of the opinion page for running a Tom Cotton op-ed on yeah. a federal response to the riots. So we, that merely having published that op-ed, which was a perfectly defensible mainstream position, somehow put the physical safety of the Times as Black employees at risk. I mean, the, that, that, that idea that one is literally at risk of one's lives is just so childish and, and slump engrossed and narcissistic so there's that at play you know is- the something that was brought up to me by actually I, I i was on a debate at the oxford union recently um on on whether everyone is religious and i actually took the side of saying everyone is religious and i talked about secular religion and argued that the oxford students were being that way but one of the people young woman who was happened to end up being on the same side pointed out something quite interesting to me which i'd never realized before she was talking about the religion of safetyism and she pointed out that the remarkable thing is if you and I didn't know about these studies that students feel far less safe now because of this fixation on safetyism than they did when there wasn't, which is kind of an interesting, an interesting result. I, I just throw up at the very premise of the question. I, it, mm. it sickens me that this even has to be asked. Like, why are we even asking students if you feel safe? Are you kidding me? On a literal basis, there's no safer place than an American university. Yeah. On a psychological basis, the idea that they're psychologically at risk is just preposterous. I, I cannot stand the entire ethic. But so, so to your examples of the firing of the Times science writer and the uh, you know toppling of of America's history. Um, the other aspect with the, the N-word repeated controversies that come up is this grotesque ignorance about some basic distinctions in, in language use and linguistics. One of the most important is the distinction between use and mention. When any white person today uh, says the N-word, he is invariably doing it so as a mention of the word, not as a use of the word. He is mentioning it, quoting it in a context of somebody else's use. He is not directing it at any given person. He is merely saying, you know, as James Baldwin said, mm. you know, ends are this way or I am an mm. end. Yeah. He's not directing it. Whereas when rap people, you know, start, it, it, there was a Twitter study done that that blacks use to, to directing it at each other, the N word something like 6 million times a month on Twitter. Uh, but that doesn't slay them. That is not lethal to them. But if a white person mentions it in a quotation context, bracketed, not, not as a put down, but as merely a object of observation and discussion, that somehow we are to believe that that puts the safety at risk. And so words have taken on, as you suggest, we're returning to a magical property where the word itself is kind of, uh, has magical powers to kill the thing that it refers to. Uh, We are not progressing in our understanding of human communication 
we are regressing to a very primitive state. There's a, there's a, you know, and I think in my, the piece I wrote on this, I, I referred to, I don't know if you've heard the, the song by Tim Minchin, but I think it's, it's, it's a perfect, when you want to put it in a less emotional context, um, uh, Tim Minchin's Australian, and he, he does a song about prejudice, and he talks about a word that you're not allowed to use, which has two G's, an E, an R, an I, and an N, and, 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 then, and then halfway through the song, and, and, and he's, he's, by the way, has red hair, he, he, the song turns into only a ginger is allowed to say ginger uh-huh. because because in Australia, in a lot of places, redhead people make fun of, fun of redheads. And of course, it happens to have the same number, same more letters in it. But but his point was, yeah, no one who isn't redhead should be allowed to use the word ginger. And, and when you put it in that non-emotional context, I think it, it it illustrates the the fact that we just take this word which in our case, for those of us who live in the States, ginger doesn't have any emotional context. And we suddenly we suddenly endow it with magical properties that it didn't have before. And, and anything like that, I, mean, I guess as a scientist, I've, I've spoken out against religion and myth and superstition my whole career because because it's such an anathema, because science is based on saying these things aren't magical. There isn't magic. You know, let's look at the data behind it. And, and that's why, for me, this whole controversy is the same. Uh, I view it as a, an attack on science and rationality. And that's why I guess I, 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 I'm so concerned. And I'm happy that, that people will discuss it, like you, at a time when it's very difficult to discuss. I, I, I don't want to spend much longer because we've gone on a while. But I do want to... Let me just I, say I, something. I, you know what? Part of what's going on here is just a power play. It is just the, the inebriating exercise of power that, mm-hmm. you know... By, by treating the by pretending that the n-word has lethal uh, destructive power over blacks blacks exercise power over everybody else and this is true for feminists as well rape uh, the word rape and, which is you know it's again which can't be used or, or can be so disconcerting in a class if you use the word rape for example but you see these yahoos that are sitting there slaying every aspect of western civilization simply because they can. They are tearing everything down because they have the power to do so. And, and power is uh, a source of, of erotic charge. It's, it's something that human beings strive for. And it also gives them authority. You know, you have now all the black activists that being black now is an accomplishment. You know, all these diversity bureaucrats that you mentioned before, that is what they, their, their skill is being black. That is their claim to fame. That's true in academics. You know, I'm here because I'm black. Uh, and, and that happens with females as well. And frankly, I don't regard being female as an accomplishment. It's not even particularly interesting, but it is something that is unique. I mean, only blacks can be black. So that is something that they will, no, nobody can take away from them and there's no competition out there. Uh, so this power to to destroy careers based on perceived uh, racial slights or, or or sex slights is really uh, an, an amazing thing, and it is something that has to be fought because it is it is it is tearing everything down around us. You know that's that's a perfect segue to the last thing I want to really talk about, which is this issue of power. The, the, when we talk about and, and what I want to get to is who gave them the power and what can we do? Because 
because that's the real problem. There was a great article, in fact, I forget in what magazine, about someone arguing, hey, you, you know, you gave you, you college administrators, you what this and that you gave people the power. But but I would argue that, in fact, that, that the root of the problem is, uh, you know, academics are a timid lot. And I would argue cowardly in general, but but um, but they're particularly afraid because their whole livelihood depends upon those above them. And what I don't know if I told you this, I think I may have written you this when I wrote a piece in The Wall Street Journal called uh, The Ideological Corruption of Science about this very about a number of these very issues. I got a lot of letters back, a lot of letters from from faculty around the country. And happily, you know, I mean, I didn't get much hate mail. I got some hate mail. Many, uh, many of them, of course, agreed with the with the, my premise. But what was shocking to me was that four individuals in particular wrote to me under pseudonyms because they were afraid that their that their superiors would see the email and they would be fired. This is academia. And so the question is, who gave who is it? Who gave people this power? I mean, the social media endows power, but only if you allow that that Twitter mob to that have an impact. And once and, and so we allow the Twitter mob to have an impact by by firing people immediately, like that woman in 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 in, in Georgetown or um, or 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 the vice president for research. in, in you know, and so I want to ask you who gave them the power and what can we do to try and to try and to try and turn the situation around or will it just be like, I mean, I worry, I, I've told people I, I, my own, I'm not optimistic. I think it'll get worse before it'll get better. It'll eventually get better when it becomes so ridiculous. My suspicion is it'll get better when it either becomes so ridiculous or enough people realize that they're under threat, that they begin to question that the premise, but I, that, you know, those are my arguments and I really meant to ask for yours. So, so let me ask you. I'm not optimistic either, although in the last couple of weeks, the, the mainstream media suppression of valid stories and valid viewpoints has become so shameless that I actually had a little moment of hope where I thought this, this can't go on. People are going to push back against it. Um, I, I don't know. And, you know, I, I certainly am not happy about academic cowardice. I don't know how I would react in that position though. You know, I'm outside the academy sure. and in when journalism and the, the fear of peer pressure, the fear of losing your job is very hard. Oh, it's understandable. I don't, I don't condemn it. It's, it's, it's totally understandable. And, and, and we, I mean, and, and we see it in two forms. We see it in people who are, I think it's manifest in people who are afraid to speak out, which is understandable. But the other where it's manifest is exactly reminds me of the communist scare in the 50s. The other way of dealing with it is to is to is to be extreme in your virtue signaling, deflect, con, deflect potential concern about yourself by pointing out that all the communists or or, or all the other races. You know, so, so going above board to to signal that you are virtuous and therefore deflect possible criticism. And, and of course that happens in some members of the academy, but where it really happens, I think is where we're seeing it in the leaders. We're seeing it on our, not just political leaders, but our scientific leaders. We're seeing Francis Collins, who, right. who not only talked about, when you, in our last talk, we talk, you talked to me about his talking about mantles, which I'd never heard of, but then I, you, you've seen him 
recently apologized for the National Institutes of Health being racist, which without any evidence whatsoever. And so I don't know how as long as as long as the the the, the leaders, our academic leaders, our government leaders, media leaders feel the necessity to virtue signal, I, I think that fear is going to persist. So I, I don't know how we address that. And, and again, I come back down to the, the ultimate fear is the fear of the academic skills gap. That's the ultimate fear. But, uh, you know, I, I also wonder, I would think that scientists would care about the integrity of their labs and that they would want the most qualified scientists there. And they don't want dead wood that has been brought in for diversity purposes. It's a mystery to me. You say, you know, it'll, maybe it'll change when people feel like their own jobs are are at stake uh, or their children, you know, well, again, there, there's a there, there's a clear there's one clear. I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I try to do less than I used to, but because um, listeners always. But but there's one clear reason that and, and you brought it up, but I've I've seen it loud, too, is that if you're if you're worried about your funding, in some sense, you have to now because um, there's two things and a, a number of funding agencies are requiring you right. to demonstrate diversity and or and this is what kills me. Young faculty who are making grants in science for scientific issues with string theory, let's say, have to, in their proposal, demonstrate issue how they're going to attack diversity. It reminds me of how they were supposed to talk about how they were going to attack public ignorance about science. Most of them are cap- have no skill set in either. The I fact know. that they have to do it in order to continue to do what they really want to do, whether it's playing lip service or simply requiring a change in, in, in the context or content of the group they work with. I think there's a reason. So that's the reason. If they want to continue to do what they want to do, they have to obey these rules. Or so, so it's, a, it's a matter of compromising a little or, or giving up entirely. Well, it's a decadent society. Uh, we've, we've got prosperity. We have been benefiting from the accomplishments and the beauties of the scientific method for centuries now and and we want to sacrifice all that to politics but again uh in unless we can speak honestly and 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 take actions that will close the skills gap this isn't going away americans white americans are utterly uh terrified that it's not going to close and that is what keeps this thing going. We want to change the topic to white supremacy. Uh, and we deserve to go down. You know, China has a ton of problems and I may be romanticizing it. And for all I know, it's scientific process, whether, you know, it's not corrupted by diversity, but it may be deeply corrupt by political connections. I don't know. Uh, but if it, if it, continues or if it does reward accomplishment and not the trivialities of race and sex, it will eventually pull out ahead. And, and if it does, we deserve it. Uh, this is, it is, it is a, a, a childish society that we got now that is driven by hatred for a civilization deemed as too white and male. Uh, and, and it, that is a, an act of resentment. It's the it's the it's the attitude of losers who believe that they cannot compete on their own, and it's a tragedy. I just finished a piece that's going to come out 
in the City Journal summer issue on the Black Lives Matter attack on classical music, the thing that is the most profound aspect of my life that's closest to my heart. And it is an utter tragedy and a travesty it's, that it's, this tradition is now being subjected to the poison of identity politics. There is nothing in our world that is standing. And you speak about the leaders and the gatekeepers. That is the problem. It is the betrayal of the guardians, museum directors who have been given the privilege of curating Western civilization that are now apologizing for, you know, the racism of, of Italian fresco painting ludicrously, uh, rather than being down on their knees and, and preserving this extraordinary inheritance. Uh, well, well, uh, well said. I, 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 and I, you know, I, my own, uh, let me just echo it in my own words too, I guess that, that for me, once again, I come up with this as a scientist who has fought myth and superstition, but the whole point of science and the, to me, the whole point of scholarship is that nothing is sacred. And that when we, when we, when we censor ourselves, censor our questions, censor others because of concerns about, about what's sacred and what can be asked, then, then the most, then the then the basis of the enlightenment is gone and for me um that's the the biggest tragedy the the fact that we that we have come we can come so far and we can go so much further in the future by continuing to ask questions without concern about where the answers will lead us and we need to do that as a as, a, as scholars and as a society and as individuals we need to continually question and i took, guess for me my own my hope lies in the hope that we can we can convince people to question that eventually the the things that occur will become so ridiculous mm -hmm. that people will question them in 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 physics there's a lot of pedagogy that says the only way you learn is to confront your own misconceptions and you do that when something is so ridiculous that eventually you say hold on and i know that 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 you know uh, that that people will be upset by some of the things that have been said here but at least they shouldn't be upset by having the discussion and I hope that that will be um, that and I will fight forever for the right to have that discussion. So thank you very much for having it with me right now. Yes, let's be anti-fragile and don't stay safe. <laughs> yeah, okay, thanks. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can continue the discussion with us on social media and gain access to exclusive bonus content by supporting us through Patreon. This podcast is produced by the Origins Project Foundation, a nonprofit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit originsprojectfoundation.org.